Broadcast out of New York City, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on Monday, March 2nd, 2015. I'm Dr. Len Saputo. And I'm registered nurse Vicki Saputo. Thank you for joining us on Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network. All of our shows are available 24-7 on prn.fm and on drsaputo.com. Today you'll hear Nurse Vicki's 2020 health tips at 20 after and 20 to the hour. And we've got another great show for you today that's going to include how do you know if the treatment your doctor prescribes is really good for you? And what everyone taking antidepressants needs to know. What's the best way to rid your body of harmful toxins? What cooking oil can help reduce your blood pressure? And what healthy food can cause autoimmunity? So how often does your doctor recommend a treatment and offer to tell you the possible harms along with the possible benefits? That doesn't happen too often. I think some of the major things we do tend to emphasize particularly if we're worried about some kind of medical malpractice, because actually, Vicki, we're required to talk about the side effects of treatments. It's just that we often don't. And most of the reason is we want to be sure that the person is going to take what we know about that might be helpful to treat people who have symptoms and diseases. So the doctors don't want their patients to be distracted from taking the treatment that they prescribe. Exactly. And that's, what, that's, how, that's how we're trained. So that's how we think. So and we just, don't think out of the box so much. Yeah, so it's just easier to tell them why to follow the treatment and not mix it up with the downside. Exactly. But is this fair to the patient? Not really. I mean, we should be included in the decision-making process. And I have to admit, it's complicated a lot of the time to explain to someone all the details of why you're doing what you're doing because people aren't doctors. It's why we doctors go to medical school. And so that the patient just trusts the doctor. That's what happens most of the time. But it turns out that fewer people benefit from medical therapies than you'd think, you know, keeping in mind that not all will suffer a side effect and not all will benefit either. Exactly. So we're going to be talking about the, the numbers needed to treat and the numbers needed to harm so that you can think about whether certain treatments are worth it or not. Right. So let's start out with some examples. Okay, well, let's, let's look at this article that came out of the New York Times uh, in uh, February of 2015. And basically what they're talking about is how many people need to be treated. That's what they call it the NNT, number of uh, needed to treat, which tells you the number of people who would need to receive a medical treatment in order to get a benefit from it. And oftentimes the number of uh, people who are needed to treat is well above 10 or even 100 and sometimes even 500. So we're looking at numbers that are sometimes shocking. Well, let's start with aspirin. Aspirin's really interesting because everybody kind of thinks that aspirin is something that we want to take in order to prevent a heart attack. And what's the number that's needed to prevent one additional heart attack over two years? Try 2,000 people. So you're talking about so two thousand people have to take an aspirin to prevent for two one years heart attack. To prevent one heart attack, exactly. And when you look at that, that's a tenth of a percent. But the way it's presented by the the drug companies and and what's repeated by the cardiologists is you'll lower the risk of a heart attack by twenty five percent if you take aspirin. And here's the example that really knocked this knocked this uh, home. There is a uh, an example we talk about people being bitten by sharks in Iceland, okay? Uh So say we have one shark, say two shark bites, okay, per year for 200,000 people. The incidence of that is pretty low, but it's two people. 
Now, a product comes out and everybody buys it. And the next year, one person gets a shark bite out of 200,000 people. So you have a 50% reduction in, in the effectiveness <laughs> of the drug. But what are you really doing? And that's why the numbers are important, not so much the percentages. And that's what the pharmaceutical industry does to try and convince you that you need this. Because do you really need to take aspirin to prevent a heart attack if, if the numbers are that low? Well, so then what do they say about the, the risks of taking aspirin? Okay, that's the number needed for harm, the NNH. And, and the number of that is if there's a major bleeding event, one in 3,333 people will have a, a major bleed within the two years. Now, there is a benefit, okay, that's a little bit bigger than the risk. But look at the numbers. We're looking at one in 2,000 are going to benefit and one in 3,300 are going to have a major disaster from They're it. They're also only talking about major bleeds, but exactly. there are other things that can happen from taking um, aspirin. aspirin. Oh, there are a ton of things that happen from aspirin. And, and those aren't factored into this. Uh, things that include allergic reactions. What happens if you have an anaphylactic reaction and die from it? Or have a, a problem with Ray syndrome, meaning that you have this terrible illness that kids that are teenagers or younger get if they take aspirin when they have a viral syndrome. A and lot ulcers. of them die from it. And ulcers and people who get asthma and, and uh, allergic can, rhinitis and polyps from it. You can even get bleeding in your eye and kidney damage. Absolutely. And if, and if you if you're an alcoholic or you're drinking a fair amount of alcohol, the risk for bleeding goes way up. If you have coagulation problems or you're on anticoagulants, you take an aspirin, it goes up. So we're looking at, at lots of things. Wait, what goes up if you take? If you're having a, a problem with... Uh, um, oh, blood clots, a, you said. And you were taking an anticoagulant you, and then you took an aspirin besides. Yes. So if you happen to be on, uh, on Coumadin or Plavix or some other... Uh, medicine that's used for anticoagulation, the risk is going to be a little higher. Maybe even fish oil, too, or ginkgo biloba. Well, you you have to be concerned about that. And what we need, of course, is more research on it. I think most doctors don't ask patients that are going to surgery, for example, if they're on fish oil or ginkgo, but they always ask them if they're on aspirin. Well, actually, they they do now, Vicki, a lot more. I'm finding that the, the eye doctors, the ones that I work with, are always asking about that, and the surgeons that I work with too, but not every doctor does. And sometimes if you're having a minor surgery, like you're just having a little mole relieved or, or uh, removed, they may not ask you that question yeah, at all. Yeah, but that it's could not bleed. Big, well, yeah, but that's not such a big issue. Not the same thing as bleeding in your eye or having a stroke. Mm-hmm. So the aspirin story is one that's a little bit frightening. And then what about mammograms? We've talked about, about those in the past, that there's greater... A greater harm than benefit. Well, that that's something that's really a, an important thing to take a look at because what we're talking about here is how many mammograms do you have to do to uh, prevent one death? And here they did a, the study that they reported in the in the New York Times was you can prevent one death after 13 years of regular mammograms for every 1,477 people. Now that's not that, very that's much, a, but that that's a long time—13 years. Well, that shows you how many mammograms have to be done to 1,400 or almost 1,500 people. To save one. To save one. And maybe that same woman would have died from another cause because over 13 years, 
of, of the women who are getting mammograms, maybe one's going to die that would have the problem with the cancer to start with. So how much have you really gained? Well, the other thing is, too, is about about the harms from mammograms, because there are a lot of things that can happen from mammograms Well, you wind up, as a result of mammograms. You wind up with five more people over this interval having a surgery they don't need, four more getting radiation uh, that they don't need because of problems that they thought they found that weren't really problems. So, because they get overdiagnosed, the there's a lot of over- overdiagnosis. So it's then what, there's extra biopsies too, and surgeries, and a lot of things. Yeah, well, that's that's exactly right. So you look at countries like Switzerland now; they don't do mammograms for screening anymore. They just threw the whole thing out, and said it causes more trouble than it does benefit. And here we are. I can remember talking to the radiologist 15 or 20 years about this, and when I questioned about mammograms, he just gave me a funny look, like, "Are you crazy?" Of course, they help prevent cancer. But in fact, it turns out these are the real numbers, and these are numbers that should be told to patients so they can make up their own mind. You really want to take a mammogram for 13 years, and once out of every 1,500 times, you're going to save a life? And how many get a breast cancer from the radiation? Well, close to the same number. They didn't factor that in. That's right. And that's one of the reasons why Switzerland said no. There was another study that showed that. Lots of studies showing that. That's right. Okay, so let's talk about antibiotics for ear infections because that's pretty popular that people think that their kids need uh, antibiotics for ear infections. Well, you think of a bacterial ear infection and you're thinking that this is really something that's a medical emergency for your kid. Well, because it hurts and they're crying and and have a fever. You want to do anything you can to try and prevent them from having uh, having to be in pain or be sick for longer than necessary. But what do the antibiotics really do? Do they reduce the pain in the first 24 hours? No, they don't. And this has been well studied. And do they reduce pain two to seven days later? The answer is yes, but how many benefit? One in 20. So what you've got here is the chance of one in 20 of reducing pain from day two to day seven after the infection started. And what are the risks? So you're looking at uh, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, rash from the antibiotics that are often using, and one person in 14 is going to get that. And also, a lot of these ear infections aren't bacterial, they're viral. Exactly. And, and if they're viral, an antibiotic doesn't do any good for that anyway. That's exactly right. Many times, you know, just a warm olive oil with just a t- teeny bit of um, garlic and maybe a little bit of mullein, which is an herb. Make it more comfortable. Take away the pain. Yeah. It's wonderful, and it's warm and soothing, and you just have your child put their head on your on your lap so that the, the, the warm oil stays in there. Right. So if you're talking about the benefits, and 1 in 20 will benefit, and the major benefit is reduction in pain, and you've got a chance of 1 in 14 of having nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, or rash from the antibiotic, what are we doing? But try and tell that to a parent. Well, yeah, because they're panicky and they want to do something. And Give them the, do something. Give them an antibiotic. Then what about when the doctors start talking about ear tubes and? Oh yeah. Well, sometimes that's a th- something to do. But what? But we're talking about here is is the antibiotics for ear infections. Are they really a good idea? The American Academy of Pediatrics says no. Says no. But still, the parent goes there, and that's what happens. Okay, but you can look at antibiotics with other things too. Absolutely. I mean, look at all the the, the MRSA infections. Oh, they're way overdone. They're way yeah, overdone. people are getting uh, antibiotic-resistant infections. Well, that's right. You know, a patient came to me last week who I've taken care of for probably about 20 years, and this woman has a problem with, with her ears, and she gets 
Sometimes it's like an allergy, and her ears get stopped up sometimes. And she's taking it. She's taking a trip to Mexico. And her comment was when she came in, "Is I'm taking a trip to Mexico. You got to give me an antibiotic because I can't take another ear infection." And I'm trying to explain this to her. There was nowhere to go because in her mind, she was convinced because of of what the doctors have been doing for the past, well, all of her life, whenever she has an ear, problem, ear infection or ear problem. So she wanted to take that with her as so a backup. Wanted, so we argued for a few minutes, and finally I said, you know, I've explained this to you. You, you get it. Uh, you understand what I'm saying. But in actuality, what you really want is an antibiotic, and you don't want to make this trip without it. So I'm going to give it to you because that's what you want. And you know the downside of it because I've explained a lot of that to you. We didn't talk about the C. diff problem. That's another one. C. difficile infections come from people who are taking antibiotics uh, for a period of time, and it wipes out all the healthy microbes in the gut, but it leaves the C. difficile there, which causes a horrible infection. You can die that people, from that. You know, there are probably 20,000 deaths a year from C. diff infections. So there is a downside to taking antibiotics. And where was she going? To Mexico. Oh, to Mexico. Yeah, well, Goodness. she may have needed it anyway, right? <laughs> but who knows? <laughs> So this is a situation where we are worried about uh, people uh, doing the right thing but not believing the data that's new, relatively new, that says what we've done in the past isn't right and it's time to change. And you, there's a value to giving them what they want because it has a placebo effect. And we know the placebo effect is very effective because what you think affects your biochemistry and physiology immensely. It changes the whole way that your body reacts. So maybe we I gave the prescription hoping it would be something that was, you know, a placebo. Well, this also applies to other things, you know, like antidepressants mm-hmm. and colonoscopies and, and PSAs for prostate cancer, placebos. When you have a belief in your mind, it has an effect that's going to be positive if that's what your belief is. And so that's what a lot of people uh, bank on, and it's in their mind. And if they don't get what they think is the right thing, they can have what's known as the nocebo effect, which is the reverse of, of a placebo. It's like putting the hex on you. If you don't give me this antibiotic, I know I'm going to get sick. And there you are. You're probably. I told you high- so. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so this whole business of, of what we do in medicine needs to be changed so we have some kind of more accurate way of informing the doctors as well as the patients for what we should do when people want a certain treatment for something. Well, that's why I was mentioning colonoscopies. We've talked about those many times too, but those are so overdone. And many times the patient doesn't even realize what the harm could be when they're having a colonoscopy because the doctor just... You know, like there's this rule, over 50, you get a colonoscopy every exactly. couple of years. Exactly. And if you had a problem, then you come back a little bit more frequently. But that's not really screening. So we've looked at the, at the statistics, and we're looking at the numbers that are needed to treat uh, for benefit uh, in colonoscopies. And I would urge you to go to drsabuda.com and put colonoscopy in the yeah, search box. We have box a lot. <laughs> and see what comes up, and you'll get the real story about what are the risks 
both sides. And about, that's what we're talking about on this topic. It, you sure. need to hear both sides of things. So, for example, with a colonoscopy, one in 200, and these are the numbers that are published by the by the uh, gastroenterologist, one in 200. Messenger. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll have a perforation or a, a GI bleed that will put you in the hospital requiring transfusions. That's a big number. And maybe one in 200 people that you do, is you're going to find something significant that will change their life. So you're now, it's not exactly even, but it's, it's worrisome. But if you're in good shape physically and you're exercising and your vitamin D levels are normal, your chances to have uh, some kind of colon cancer or other serious problem are more like one in 400 or 500. Would you want to do a routine colonoscopy on that person? Of course not, because you don't want to take the risk of causing a problem with a perforation or a bleed because you're doing biopsies. Then when the doctors go in there and they do the colonoscopy, they're taking everything out that looks a little abnormal. And we have so many people who have polyps that aren't causing any problems at all. They're there, you'll die with them, not from any cancerous changes. Some of them are different, but in general, they take them all out. You know, marketing is such big business, advertising. and. Many of us are so brainwashed that even when we know better, mm. we still go back to that crutch of believing what we've been told for so many years or by our parents or by whoever sure. it was. You I know? still remember some things from medical school. They said, this is how you should do this. And, and, and things have changed since then. But it's hard to change your thinking. When you're used to doing a certain thing because it was ingrained in your mind, and that's what you learned. And you believed that. You believed it, yeah. Some of it, well, some of it I didn't, but some of it I certainly did. But it's like that, really, with antibiotics and oh. with aspirin, too. And look at all the people that take aspirin. You know, they think they're preventing what we were talking about earlier, the, the heart attack. Exactly. And they just think, oh, it's just a baby aspirin, Oh, look meaning, at all- meaning it wouldn't hurt a baby, but it does hurt a baby. Babies aren't supposed to take aspirin. Oh, that's right. Well, that's right. And look at the statins. You know, we're all prescribing all these statins are way over overused in medicine. And don't think they don't have problems, too. I mean, you have to treat 100 people or 200 people for five years to prevent one heart attack. Now, what these are the number to treat here is huge. And, and the benefit, you've prevented one heart attack. And what's your percentages there? Really low. Yet when you talk to your cardiologist, the cardiologist is going to say, oh, these cholesterol values are no good. We're going to have to do something to lower it, forgetting that there's this thing called lifestyle that includes diet and exercise and stress and sleep and all the things that might lower your cholesterol and reduce the amount of LDL that you have or the triglycerides that are too high. A lot of ways to do it besides just the the ways that we were taught and the ways that benefit in some way the pharmaceutical industry or the doctors who are doing the procedures. It's sort of like why doctors shouldn't be allowed to have investments in things like MRIs or certain kinds of technology. Of interest, yeah. yeah, because they start referring for more of them. We know that. We've studied that. It's what happens. And it's easy to, to convince yourself as, oh, well, we probably could take a look and, 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 and make sure that there's nothing there. But is the actual indication really there? But look at when you watch the commercials on television and they talk about the side effects. They're like just brushed oh, off like they're not important. Exactly. And, and I think a lot of times that's what the doctors do too because they want so much for you to take the treatment. Where we get mixed up between business and service. You're right. So it's probably a person's responsibility to look some of that up themselves online. You have to because your doctor often won't tell you. 
You're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputa here with Nurse Vicki. So it's time for your first tip, Vicki, on facts to remember as we grow older. And we know about that. And when we come back, we'll be talking about what everyone taking antidepressants needs to know. Because a sense of humor is healthy and laughter is the best medicine, I have some facts to remember as we grow older. What's the number one killer in the world? Death. <laughs> Life is sexually transmitted. Good health is merely the slowest possible rate at which one can die. Jeez, there's the eternal optimist. <laughs> health nuts. They're going to feel pretty stupid someday lying in the hospital dying of nothing. <laughs> All of us could take a lesson from the weather. It pays no attention to criticism. Right. In the 60s, people took acid to make the world weird. Now the world is weird, and people take Prozac to make it normal. (laughs) That's great. Life is like a jar of jalapeno peppers. What you do today might burn your tush tomorrow. (laughs) Be careful. Right. And as someone recently said to me, don't worry about old age. It doesn't last that long. Oh, comforting. (laughs) And then I have some thoughts like, wouldn't it be great if we could just put ourselves in the dryer for 10 minutes, come out wrinkle-free and three sizes smaller? (laughs) That's great. Put some bounce in to smell better, too. When I was a child, I thought a nap was a punishment. Now, as I grow up, it just feels like a small vacation. (laughs) If God wanted me to touch my toes, he would have put them on my knees. That's right. The kids text me PLZ, which is shorter than please. I text back no, which is shorter than yes. (laughs) How clever. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to retire and live off my savings. Not sure what I'm going to do that second week, though. Oh, the rewards of retirement. Oh, Lord, give me the patience and give it to me now. Of course, I talk to myself. Sometimes I need expert advice. (laughs) That's great, Vicki. You're right. Laughter is the best medicine. Okay. You know, research shows that antidepressants worsen depression rather than help it. Doesn't that sound crazy? It does sound because we all have this idea that that's what they were made for. So obviously, if they were made for that and they're sold as that, then they, then they, should, they, should, they should have passion. But you know, if you're depressed and you're listening to this, it might make your hair stand on end. But you need to listen to how the popular drugs like Prozac, Zoloft, Celexa, and Effexor, just to name a few, how they actually work. Or don't work. Yeah. That's right. Well, serum levels of serotonin, which is the feel-good hormone, mm-hmm. they might drop with depression. But it's not because of decreased production of serotonin. So what's really happening? Well, when we're depressed, we make more serotonin, but the brain needs more serotonin. So it uses it up. And levels, of course, are going to drop as long as production can't keep up with it. So for a while, production keeps up with it. Everything's fine. But when we get depressed and you measure uh, levels of serotonin, very often they're low because we've had it for a while and we haven't been able to keep up in production. So we got this idea that we should raise serum levels of serotonin. That would make sense, thinking that if we did that, that of course everything would be better. But what are we doing? How do we raise those levels? We block the reuptake of serotonin after it's been released by the end of a nerve 
so that it cannot be taken up by the other side of the, of the other nerve next to it that's supposed to be picking up the serotonin. So in, in effect, what's happening is the nerve ending is releasing serotonin, but when you take the SSRI antidepressants, the receptor sites to which that serotonin is supposed to go to are blocked. And so serotonin builds up there, the levels in the serum build up, but what happens in the brain? So it's the not, levels ava- go not available down, in the brain. Not available. So you should be getting worse. And if you look at what happens during the first couple of weeks of taking a drug like serotonin, very often people are worse. But we say, well, it just takes time for it yeah, to start yeah, to work. Yeah, people just accept that. They say, oh, the first couple of weeks you might feel, you know, feel worse. Well, what about those people that actually feel better? What's the benefit of all of, the, of, that, of that class of antidepressants, the placebo. And don't think it's small. It's about 30%. Well, we've done studies on that in the past. We've reported on studies on that many times in the past, showing that when you look at the overall effect of SSRI antidepressants, uh, including all of the studies that weren't published because they didn't show a positive effect, along with the ones that did, and there were about 82 studies that were reported in one particular scientific journal uh, a few years ago, it showed that there was no benefit over placebo of using these for mild to moderate depression. So what we're talking about here is basically the effect of placebo to start with. So this is kind of putting the pieces of the puzzle together. It's putting it together in a way that it gives you a clearer understanding of what's actually happening here. So we have to look at at what we're being told by the people who are doing the research and publishing it, which is Big Pharma, and look at the science and the logic behind what's actually happening. So the drugs, it sounds like the drugs are sabotaging the serotonin that the brain needs. That's how it looks. And so when people are not getting better during the, or not getting very much worse during the first few weeks of treatment, that's a tribute to the power of the placebo action of the drug. So the placebo action makes up for what the drug does to you to reduce its effectiveness. Isn't that a story? But haven't they done the placebo trials, you know? Well, of course they do. The placebo trials are done all the time. In fact, that's the mainstay of the way we do our research. However, you have to show that there's an added benefit of the drug over placebo in order for the FDA so to approve it. So how do they it. do that? Well, they just publish the ones that show that there's a positive effect. And the ones that show there's a not a positive effect, they don't publish. But when these researchers got all of the articles together, there was no net benefit from the drug. So the FDA rightfully shouldn't have approved these these for treatment. So when we're looking at what the what these drugs do which is block serotonin from being uptaken by the brain, it actually puts a burden on the brain because it likes the serotonin in order to feel much better. That's why it has antidepressant action. But you'd be much better off giving something like 5-HTP, which is a drug that is a precursor to make serotonin. Is it a drug? Well, it's a supplement. A supplement. Yeah. It sounds like what's happening when you take the serotonin is just it's interfering with nature. Well, it is. Because the body is is already taking up extra serotonin into the brain. That's why your blood 
is low in That's the That's what these authors who published this thing in February of 2015 in Neurosciences and Behavioral Reviews said. And, and it, when I read it, I thought, how could I have been so dumb? is to believe all this research that says serotonin levels go up. And then you go ahead and you measure the levels of a lot of the, of the neurotransmitters, and that's supposed to tell you what the treatment would be best in terms of antidepressants or supplements, and think you're doing the right thing. And they give you the wrong idea, because all of a sudden, you're measuring serotonin, the levels are low, you give the antidepressant, it raises the serum levels because the brain has taken up less, and then you remeasure the neurotransmitter levels again, including serotonin, and they're higher, and you think you've done something good. Isn't that ironic? Because you're doing something bad. And I guess they need to measure the serotonin levels in the brain. Pretty hard to do. Not too many volunteers for that. <laughs> right? Not going to yeah. do any tissue levels. But I think it's beautiful how the body can react naturally to depression to help you that and and how placebo effect really does a lot to, to to bail you out of situations like that all right it's time for a network station break you're listening to prescriptions for health i'm dr lynn saputo here with nurse vicky and we'll be right back with more prescription for health radio and we'll be talking about what's the best way to rid your body of harmful toxins Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputer here with Nurse Vicki. Have you ever had a medical doctor recommend detoxification as a part of your treatment? I'm not sure they can spell detoxification. <laughs> and I mean that in jest, of course, because we really don't get trained in that. It's not a field that we look at, although medicine is starting to look at some of the things that happen uh, when we take certain things into the body, like different kinds of drugs and some of the different pathways that are involved with how those products, how those drugs are detoxified and, and how the, they affect other drug levels. Yeah, and, and besides drugs, all the environmental toxins that we have. Absolutely. And so, the toxins that are in food and plastics. and well, it's We're good like that, in a sea of toxins. Well, finally, we're, we're getting around to having a look at what things do to us to interfere with our metabolism that can interfere with making energy and for us being healthy. So now we have the research that confirms that it's important in ridding our bodies of dangerous heavy metals and the other pollutants and chemicals. Mm -hmm. So let's start out by talking about what detoxification is and how do we do it? Right. Well, we get poisoned by things that are in food, water, air, and soil. Some of it's because there are natural toxins in there, but also we've done a lot to make things more toxic because of just being human beings using the environment to our advantage. And we do things like make GMO foods and we put... Uh, herbicides and pesticides and plasticizers and uh, heavy metals in the environment and on food. We take that in. Don't think that doesn't have some kind of effect on our biochemistry and physiology. It has a profound effect. And if it interferes enough with that, it'll keep us from being able to do the normal things that our cells do to keep us healthy. 
Yeah, it's just like, you know, the mercury that's in the water, and now we've got radiation in the sea, too, you know, in our seafood. Look at Fukushima, yeah. There's lots of things we have done. We could be a lot more respectful about the environment, about Mother Earth, and go back to maybe the way the Native Americans looked at at, uh, Mother Earth and how they respect it and take it into into their daily lives and, and make sure that they're not doing something to upset it for future generations. Okay, so there are things that we can do to detoxify to help get rid of these toxins that are being stored in our body, mostly in our fat cells. Well, it's it's in our fat cells for sure, the ones that we're the most uh, concerned about, but they're also in, in the rest of our body too. Some are water-soluble, some are fat-soluble. Well, the fat-soluble ones kind of pile up, right? They do indeed. I mean, some things like cobalt. For example, when I was poisoned by cobalt from my hip replacement, uh, a few years ago and was really sick from it, uh, that was washed out just by taking in large amounts of water because it's water-soluble. But other things like pesticides and herbicides and uh, PCBs and phthalates are fat-soluble, and they concentrate there, and they come out when we sweat. So there's certain things that we can do ourselves to detoxify, like the exercising, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're going to talk about some of the other ways to detoxify. Right. But also there's ways to detoxify that a person really does need the guidance of a healthcare practitioner mm-hmm. that specializes or really knows a lot about detoxification because there could be problems if you don't do it the right way. Well, you want to be able to balance ways that we can get rid of things that are not good for us. And there are ways of taking in certain kinds of nutrients, things like N-acetylcysteine, might be important in trying to make glutathione, which is probably the most important intracellular antioxidant that we have in our body and helps to do a lot to support detoxification, especially in the liver. So there's a whole host of things that come into what we do once we're polluted, once our bodies are polluted. And we know that we're radically polluted because of a study that was done maybe 10, 15 years ago called the Body Burden that was done by the Environmental Working Group. And what they did is they looked to see, they studied nine people in different areas of the country, some in the middle of big cities where you'd expect a lot of toxicity, but some in areas like the coast of California uh, in Bolinas, which is really clean, beautiful air, and they're eating organic foods, and of course, they didn't live there their whole lives, and maybe that's part of it, but nobody had less than a couple of hundred different neurotoxins and uh, things that could, uh, carcinogens and things would cause birth defects and just be uh, plain old toxic to the body. And it was a wake-up call that said that there's a lot of it, there's a lot of toxicity out there. We now live in a sea of toxins. And unless we're willing to clean up the environment, change our ways and get back to nourishing Mother Earth, leaving her the way we found her or better, we're going to continue to have things that happen to us that are a problem because we're going to be unable to sustain our normal physiology to keep us healthy. It seems to me that I remember that babies are born with something like 300 oh, pro- uh, probably toxins so. in their umbilical cord. Well, they get a lot in their umbilical cord because the mother's toxic, and then the mother excretes a lot of the toxins in the breast because the breast is also a, a sweat gland that detoxifies the mother. So when she feeds the baby, then the, you have all these good and bad things uh, entering into the baby system. Well, that's and why it's so important bag. for a mother to eat he- a healthy diet and eat oh. or- organic food. 
and do all the things you can do to detoxify, like uh, making sure that you exercise on a regular basis and don't expose yourself to a lot of toxic things in the environment. Okay, so one of the things about sweating, let's talk about sweating, Uh because that's really a good thing to do is to sweat to get those toxins out. But a person has to remember to wash it off or a lot of the toxins will just reabsorb. Well, that's right. And, and, And when you're sweating, it's not just the water part of the sweat that's coming out, the sweat glands. It's the oily stuff. It's also the, f- from the sebaceous glands, the oils that it we were just talking about. There was a great article uh, published in Green Med Info uh, by Sayer G. That's S-A-Y-E-R is his first name and J-I is his second name that I highly recommend. In fact, people should be joining that site just like they should be joining com. And ours is free, theirs isn't, but still, he has a lot of information on there that is much deeper than what we have. It's more of a reference uh, resource as opposed to one that we've designed that has a lot more to do with presenting short videos and and some audios uh, and very little text to try and make it easy for people to listen to us. But what he reported uh, back uh, about a couple of years ago was that there are there's a lot of new data that's supporting that when you sweat, there's something that, that happens to detoxify that's a lot more important than you might think. In fact, toxic elements were found in different, degree, in different degrees in blood, urine, and sweat. And some of the time, the toxic elements that appeared to be uh, present were excreted preferentially through the sweat. So you may get a situation where there's actually nothing that you can measure in the serum, nothing you can measure in the urine, but a ton that comes out in the sweat. And, and who measures your sweat? Well, that's right. Well, these studies did that. And they showed that it's very easy to underestimate the total body burden of a lot of these toxicants. And that's why we do provocative tests, which means we'll look at urine when we're looking for heavy metals. And if you just collect the urine and study the concentration of heavy metals in the urine, you'll miss an awful lot of people who are very toxic. Because until you pull those heavy metals out with something like a chelating agent that actually draws them out of the fat tissue so they'll be in the serum and then can be excreted in the urine and measured in the urine, you really miss it. So we do a provocative test, which means that we not only look at the baseline to see if there's anything, any heavy metals in urine, but give them something that'll pull it out of the fat tissues and then it gets into the urine and we can see that there's a ton of stuff that's there. So the mainstream just misses it. In fact, they didn't even look for it that way. Well, the toxins aren't just excreted in the urine and the sweat, also in the blood and, oh, and sure. the GI tract yes. and, the, and our, our bile and, uh-huh. you know, other ways. Sure, but even through the, the breath. Okay, that's right. And exercise, besides exercising, there's things like getting in a sauna or in a spa because uh-huh. it's especially for those fat-soluble toxins. There's the hot yoga, there's sweat lodges. Uh-huh. And then there's some, some things that people can do with some um, guidance from a healthcare practitioner, like lymphatic drainage and uh-huh. maybe brushing, sure. uh, coffee enemas, um, mm-hmm. different teas, and then even things like cilantro and chlor- chlorella. Yeah, well, that takes a professional to know when to do what there, because if you try detoxifying with some of those things and you don't know what you're doing, you'll actually make things worse. And it's a long story why, just trust me for now. 
Also, to get um, amalgams are really important. This, the mercury in our fillings and yeah. our teeth. Right. And vaccines have mercury in them. That's and hard also to believe. The, true. They also increase the incidence of autoimmune diseases. And exactly. Remember that our liver detoxifies. So, We could go on with this for quite a while, but uh, it's time for us to come back with uh, Vicki's 2020 tips. So you're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Sabuna here with Nurse Vicki. And her tip is going to be on why eat root vegetables. And when we come back, we're talking about what cooking oil can help reduce your blood pressure. And lastly, what healthy food can cause autoimmunity. some of the benefits of common root vegetables on natural news that I wanted to share with you today. And first, I think we should talk about what root vegetables are. Right. They're the root of the plant. Mm -hmm. Things like potatoes and sweet potatoes and carrots and beets and onions and garlic. Mm -hmm. And um, what these things, these roots are, is they're high in vitamins and minerals that they absorb from the soil. Uh And we were just talking earlier about how important the soil is. Oh, for sure. And if it's so, not in the soil, we can't get it into the into the vegetable. Yeah, and we don't want toxins in that soil. That's right. So these root vegetables are full of nutrients, and they're an excellent source of uh, fiber. And most of them are high in vitamins A, B, and C, mm-hmm. and they're high in antioxidants. Right. And they have a lot of uh, remarkable healing properties. So, so when you're choosing root vegetables... They need to be firm and blemish-free. And if the tops are still attached, you want to use fresh leaves, obviously. You don't want them to be drooping over. I've noticed that sometimes with carrot tops. And um, many of the tops can even be eaten as well as the root. Mm -hmm. Some people put them in soups and things like that. But not the carrot tops. <laughs> One time I oh bought <laughs> I bought carrot tops at the farmer's market for the horses, and I put them in the refrigerator, and yeah. I forgot to tell you, and I forgot to take them I out to the ranch. This doesn't taste very good. What is and it? And I came home, and you'd been cooking and seasoned them and everything else. And well, they weren't tops. terrible, but... The- but, but but they were but they're still healthy for well, you. Well, the horses really like them. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> Not cooked though the way you did it. <laughs> but they can be eaten raw, steamed, sautéed, baked, roasted, stir-fried or mm-hmm. fried. Mm-hmm. And about potatoes, you know, that's like one of the top vegetables. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know they really are nutritious unless they're fried or they're loaded with lots of ex- ex- well, too much fat and sour cream and all that well, kind of just, thing. Well, just this cook it in coconut oil, right? be very healthy for you. Yeah, that would be a good way if and you it's wanted good to, to And the red potatoes are particularly good to lower your blood pressure. We yeah. did a story on that once. Yep. But potatoes are one of the dirty dozens, so, so they have some of the highest pesticide residues, so mm. you need to always eat organic potatoes. Right. And then carrots. You know, we all know that those are good for our eyes, but it, this includes glaucoma and cataract prevention, too. Uh-huh. And then some of the new studies show uh, that they that vitamin A in, in the carrots can help to prevent colon cancer, and um, carrots can prevent cardiovascular disease. You can pre- help prevent measles, Right. High levels of, of vitamin A are what we oh, use to treat measles right. in third world countries. It's that's a big right. deal. Cuts the mortality we rate in half. need to send them some carrots. That's right. <laughs> and then sweet potatoes. You know, there's like 400 varieties of sweet potatoes, and My they goodness. come in a lot of different colors and so forth. But they're anti-inflammatory. They have antioxidant properties. And, and the leaves are often added to the soups. And the purple sweet potatoes contain antioxidants 
that are more than three times that of blueberries. Wow. Isn't that something? Uh, that blows my mind. That, that's hard to believe. Yeah, so we need to look for purple sweet potatoes. Well, that's right. <laughs> I've never seen one. And then onions, they support our cardiovascular system, <laughs> benefiting our heart and our blood vessels. They also help increase bone density. Onions also support our ligaments and they're anti-inflammatory. Onions have also been shown to prevent cancer and they're antibacterial and they help to balance our blood sugar. And those are also loaded with vitamins and minerals. Isn't Mother Nature wonderful? Yeah. (laughs) And beets beets provide antioxidant, anti-inflammatory and detoxification support. Mm-hmm. And they're especially good for the nervous system and for our eye health, and they help prevent heart disease and cancer, and their fiber is especially healthy for our digestive tract. Cool. And then the all-star is garlic. Oh, yeah. It's antiviral, sure. antibacterial, antifungal, anti-inflammatory. It helps to prevent cancer, and it has cardiovascular benefits, and, it, and it's loaded with vitamins and minerals and so forth. It lowers so, your blood pressure. So go for the... Yeah. The root vegetables are healthy. You bet. If, if Mother Nature makes it, most of the time, uh, it's good for you. Although, obviously, there's some exceptions. Yeah, so go for the root vegetables. Okay. Coconut oil has had a big comeback since its bad rap so many years ago when the polyunsaturated oils were competing in the marketplace with saturated fats. That was back in the 60s and 70s when we thought that was really, that saturated fat in general was really bad for you. But we've sure shown that that's not the case. But you know, when people believe something like that and they've been brainwashed oh, and yeah, all, that, hard mar- to all that marketing by that big business, that's right. it's really hard to get that out of your minds because people are still afraid of saturated fats. Absolutely right. Well, we've learned over the years that coconut oil has become a superfood with multiple benefits, and now we can add beating high blood pressure used in combination with exercise to the list. Right. This was a very interesting study that was uh, that came out of Brazil at one of the universities there and published in the journal called Applied Physiology, Nutrition, and Metabolism in February of 2015. And basically, this was a study that was done on rats who had a tendency to develop hypertension. And what they did is they tested them by either exercising them or giving them coconut oil over a five-week period or doing both. And what they found over that period of time is that both exercise and uh, coconut oil independently lowered blood pressure, but when they were taken together, it brought it back into the range of normal. That's huge. To be able to do something like that with a food that's healthy for you and a natural thing like exercise, as opposed to every pill that's out there that's used to try and bring, bring blood pressure down. The trouble is if somebody brings us up to their doctors, most of the doctors aren't going to know about they it. They won't know about it, so they have to, they'll have to listen to this show or go to our site at drsabuda.com. Or tell the doctor that they would like to try this first before they take the medication. Oh, for sure. I mean, look at Unless how, their blood pressure is like 250 over, well, you know. Well, you probably wouldn't want to choose this for that. <laughs> but I mean, and, and there's a place for drugs for sure, but it should be the last choice, not the first one should always be doing exactly. the least invasive uh, approach that is the most natural. And, and e- I mean, exercise is such a powerful thing by itself, just like adequate sleep is and relaxation and meditation. And stress. <laughs> oh, all these things are, are fantastically important. You know that there's things that people don't even realize that like artificial sweeteners can raise your blood pressure. That's right. And many times uh, salt and not having enough vitamin D and even yeah. medications like 
NSAIDs, you know, the oh, Motrin, sure. Aleve, Advil, and all those, oh, ibuprofen. Yeah. Even aspirin and, and Tylenol. Tylenol. <laughs> yeah. And then what about meds that people buy over the, over the counter, like, you know, cold medicines and things? Oh, for sure. They can raise your blood pressure a lot. They have actually specific components in them that are designed to be what are called sympathomimetic drugs, meaning that they stimulate the sympathetic nervous system. And there have been some reported strokes, mostly in women, taking cold medicines that have decongestants in them that uh, will uh, raise blood pressure immensely. Ephedra is a bad one. Well, ephedrine is what's in there. Yeah. Yeah. Ephedra is a is an herb. We don't want to give that a bad rap. If that's done in a way that's intelligent by a competent herbalist, it's a safe approach. Yeah, it's just not so great when people try treating themselves. Absolutely right. And then steroids can raise blood pressure too, and kidney and thyroid disease, and even sleep apnea. Oh, there are lots of ways to get hypertension. And and we should be looking at the cause for why people get hypertension rather than just going after trying to lower the blood pressure because it doesn't it make more sense to know what you're dealing with first and then to try and direct your attention to solving that problem as opposed to just giving some big drug that's going to have the potential to cause all kinds of problems. Well, I'd also like to throw out some of the other benefits of coconut oil mm-hmm. because it's good for brain function. They found that it's helpful for Alzheimer's disease. Absolutely. Uh, for metabolism mm-hmm. and digestion and, and just for energy, for weight loss. I mm-hmm. thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Anti, anti, anti fungal, fungal. Somebody that told me that she put it on her, on her foot for... Um, athlete's foot and it cured her fungus in her foot and it's good even for um psoriasis i had somebody else tell me that coconut oil helped her you know to cure her psoriasis but But i think it takes a couple weeks yeah Mm -hmm. i i tried it i've tried it too and it does help but Mm -hmm. but you have to be patient because it does take a couple weeks sure and doesn't it work for your gums as well yeah, for that oil pulling. Uh-huh. Yeah, we talked about that in the past, too. Mm-hmm. You swish it around in your mouth for 20 minutes. I like know, at night the... when I come into the bathroom to talk to you and you're swishing oil. Oh, it it's not at minutes. night, it's in the morning. Is that what it is? <laughs> okay. But it's good for viral and bact- viruses and bacteria and bruises and, and candida. Uh-huh. Now, candida is a, is a yeast, which uh-huh. is like a fungus. So, sure. Um, and it boosts our immunity. It's good for other skin diseases, uh-huh. too. It prevents arteriosclerosis and heart problems. It's, I, I even was reading it was helpful for herpes, for HIV, H. pylori, giardia, the flu, a lot of things. So include coconut oil in your diet and reduce your blood pressure and all these other things. <laughs> it's a good way to go. We should be thinking more in terms of that as opposed to drugs. You're right, Vicki. Well, we've all heard of autoimmune diseases. But what are they? I mean, and what causes them and how can they be treated? New research confirms a mechanism that we've suspected for years that's involved with diseases such as AIDS and lupus and, mm-hmm. and multiple sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis and vasculitis and ulcerative colitis and many others that may shock you. Right. So scientists from the University of Michigan have now shown that exposure to mercury is the main risk factor for autoimmune disease. Say that again, Vicki. That's a very (laughs) profound statement. That exposure to mercury is the main risk factor for autoimmune diseases. And look at all the places that we put mercury where it's not necessary. I mean, mercury is one of the most toxic substances on the planet. In fact... The EPA requires that it be stored in a toxic waste dump. Or in your mouth. Or in your mouth. That's the thing that's... Or in vaccines. Yeah, and, of course, it's in j- fish. 
I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> but it's, it's interesting. But it's too toxic. You have to put it in a waste dump, yeah. hazardous waste Don't dump. Don't you kind of get the idea that maybe mercury's not good for us and maybe we should be avoiding it? I mean, that's what this is all about. And when we look at the study from the University of Michigan, which was published in Environmental Health Perspectives, they found that mercury, even at low levels that were generally considered to be safe, were associated in this study with autoimmunity, meaning that there were antibodies detected against our own tissues in those people. And it was related in a linear fashion, so that the more mercury we took in, the more autoimmune antibodies were present. So don't overdo those sushi bars. Well, and, pay, and pay attention to which seafoods have the most mercury in them. Like sword, swordfish, king mackerel, and tile have the highest. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you look at other things. The examples they gave here I've got a problem with. Shrimp is okay. Canned light tuna. I'd be very careful about tuna. I mean, it, tuna is one of the places where we get the most mercury. So I suppose if you got the right tuna or somebody measured the amount of mercury that was in the tuna, you could do it. In fact, there are some places locally where we live, Vicki, uh, in Marin, actually, where they measure the amount of mercury that's in the fish before you buy the fish, which is a great idea because you want to know which ones are the ones you have to worry about. And it's not just the level of mercury that's in there. It's also the level of glutathione, which is a, uh, a way that the fish detoxifies the mercury by binding it so it doesn't be, it's not toxic to you when you eat the fish. And there are different levels of glutathione in different places in in the world where fish are swimming. So the whole system is complicated, and you have to know what you're doing. Well, the bigger the fish, the more mercury, because it's been around longer to collect it. That's right. Because it's been around longer to consume other sources of mercury. That's right. Okay, then you were mentioning about the vaccinations. Well, we've this isn't new, and we've talked about this, and a lot of people have talked about this, the thimerosal that's in the vaccinations. Exactly. But what's good to know is that if if you think that you really need to have a vaccination for something. Yeah, well. I mean, there may, time, there may be times when that's reasonable to do. Okay, so say you do. What you want to ask for is a single-dose vial. You don't want That's to have right. it from the multi-dose vial because the multi-dose vials are the ones that are known for having all this mercury in them. That's right. Well, that's the way they make it Because them. they want to preserve it to have it, you know, last a lot longer. Yeah, but the point is, is that why use thimerosal? And when you're talking about babies, the doses that infants are getting is enormous. I mean, it's not low dose. It's enough that the EPA says it's toxic. And yet it's still being offered. And our kids are getting, by the time they're 18 years old, 70 different injections of vaccines from 16 different vaccines. Talk about overkill. Wow. Okay. And then about the amalgams in our mouths. Uh-huh. You know, that's the, the silver fillings. Yeah, that, they're 50% mercury. That are mercury. They call them silver, but they're, they're, they're actually, that's what And they if you want to get rid of them, there's a special way to do it. And it's best to go to an environmental dentist to have them remove it because when they remove them, there's mercury that's that's outgassed and you're inhaling it and it's getting in you and toxic, you know, uh, poisoning you. There's a lot of controversy about that. I think most dentists are coming around with the idea that why put one of the most toxic substances in the body? Uh, They're not doing it much anymore. No, it's a lot less. And we have to keep in mind that Elemental mercury, meaning the mercury that you, you know, that shiny stuff, mm-hmm. that's not so toxic even if you eat it. 
What's toxic is when it, I have gases and you breathe it in, and it and it, it it comes into us in a form that can be highly toxic. Yeah, but you breathe it in your mouth when you're chewing. <laughs> We've seen that a lot. We've seen that in videos. Anyway, Vicky, we're at the end of the show. So, so if you enjoyed today's radio show and you'd like to have more information on the topics that we discussed in video and free access to more than 2,600 audio and video files, click on Health Headlines on the DrSaputo.com homepage. And remember, a healthy lifestyle is the most powerful healer in the universe. So if you want to be well, pay attention to the style in which you live your life. Mm-hmm.